This is about me wanting the church to thrive. I am not attacking any house of worship. I am not attacking any holy book. I am not attacking any ritual. I am not attacking any religion. I am not attacking any faith. I am not attacking any spirituality. I value the human rights, the civil and political rights, and the economic, social, and cultural rights of all religious people, all faith-based people, and all spirituality-based people, and people of all pious persuasions. And I say that with humility and grace in my heart. These episodes I've been doing have everything to do with never bashing faith, but more importantly, bringing the issues that people throw at faith so faith can be 100% what Jesus intended it to be. What Christ-likeness is truly all about, what God-likeness is truly consistent with. I say that about Christianity, and these issues are in all religions. So I'm not picking on Christianity. I say what I say because I want all religions, all houses of worship, all faiths and all spiritualities to thrive. I also value the human rights, the civil and political rights, and economic, social, and cultural rights of people who, of all the other religions that are not Christian. And I value the human rights, the civil and political rights, and the economic, social, and cultural rights of all Christians, of all denominations of Christianity. And faith-based people, spirituality-based people, religious people are welcome to be a part of my personal life and my professional life. Let's talk about Mahatma Gandhi and Jesus Christ. RobCollection.com Gandhi's original letter on Jesus Christ acquired and sold by Rob. February 27, 2018. News this acquisition and sale was covered in worldwide media. Valued at $50,000, this is the only letter of Gandhi on the existence of Jesus to have reached the public market. One of the quotes is attributed to Gandhi. Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, February 28, 2017. The Rob Collection announced today that it will be unveiling and offering for sale an original letter of Mahatma Gandhi in which he discusses the nature of the existence of Jesus. We located no record of any letter of Gandhi on Jesus to have reached the public market. Gandhi also discusses his hope for peace among religions worldwide. The letter has been in a private collection for half a century. This letter is the embodiment of Gandhi's vision for a world of religions at peace. His belief in Jesus as a teacher of mankind shows his efforts to find commonality with his fellow man, says Nathan Robb, principal at the Robb Collection. I say humankind, fellow people, so the entire human diversity belongs and not just be included. Text of letter. Type letter signed Sarbamati Ashram Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad Gujarat, April 6, 1926, to France. To France. Not the country, but F R A N T Z. Dear friend, I have your letter. I am afraid it is not possible for me to subscribe to the creed you have sent me. The subscriber is made to believe that the highest manifestation of the unseen reality was Jesus Christ. 
In spite of all my efforts, I have not been able to feel the truth of that statement. I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus is one of the great teachers of mankind. Do you not think that religious unity is to be had not by a mechanical subscription to a common creed, but by all respecting the creed of each? In my opinion, difference in creed there must be so long as there are different brains. But who does it matter if all these are hung upon the common thread of love and mutual self-esteem? Um, I return this stamp kindly sent by you. It cannot be slash be used in India. Yours sincerely, Mahatma Gandhi. Or Mohandas K. Gandhi. Um, Providence. In 1926, a Christian religious leader in the United States, Milton Newberry, France, wrote to Gandhi asking to read a recent publication he had written with verses with, about Christianity. It has been in a private collection since the 1960s, acquired at the time from a New York City-based historical document dealer. A note on rarity. This is one of the finest letters on religion that Gandhi ever wrote. Our research discloses no other letter of Gandhi mentioning Jesus to have ever reached the public market. About the Rob Collection. Rob, R-A-A-B. The Rob Collection has handled many of the most important historical documents to reach the market and work with the families of famous Americans in the sale and preservation of their family treasures, among them Neil Armstrong, Thomas Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant, William Henry Harrison, and Ronald Reagan, Nathan Robb, a member of the Board of Directors of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, is also contributed to Forbes.com. To learn more, visit www.raabrobcollection.com or follow at RAAB Collection, Rob Collection on Twitter. Okay, now I'm not attacking. This is Gandhi's relationship with religion. I'm just telling you how Gandhi felt. So nobody's being insulted nor offended here. By Frank Raj, Wednesday, December 31st, 2014, Gandhi glimpsed Christ rejecting Christianity as a false religion. Middle East India, March 28, 2011. After 20 centuries, all that can be said of Christianity is that it is the world's largest religion with over 2 billion followers. Its influences on, says men's hearts, but I'm gonna say people's hearts and minds as the truth is highly debatable. Mahatma Gandhi is perhaps the best example of someone who is discerning enough to reject Christianity, not Christ. He was deeply hurt by his experiences with apartheid and Christians, they put it in quotations, I did not, during his time in South Africa, and it obviously stymied his relationship with Christ. This is the WashingtonTimes.com. Like Gandhi, millions have been unable to see the Christ obscured by Christianity. Gandhi was shrewd enough to tell missionaries, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. When asked why he did not embrace Christianity, Gandhi said it offered nothing he could not get from his own religion, observing, to be a good Hindu also meant that I would be a good Christian. There is no need for me to join your creed to be a believer in the beauty of the teachings of Jesus or try to follow his example. The man whose death Nobel Prize nominee and legendary missionary E. Stanley Jones described as, in quotations, the greatest tragedy since the Son of God died on the cross precisely assessed Christianity as being no different from other religions. Gandhi took the ideas of Christ and tried to implement them by faithfully adhering to Hinduism, but he did not realize that but he did not realize there were forces already at work in his lifetime converting the Hindu religion into Hindutva, a fanatic ideology developed by radical Hindus who ultimately murdered the Mahatma. I'm not attacking Hinduism. There's a difference between the real religion 
and the heartless people who tried to hijack the real religion. All right. I'm not saying all right as in I approve. I'm saying all right as in I'm going to the next article to read. The Crimson.com, no writer attributed January 11th, 1927. Mahatma Gandhi says he believes in Christ, but not Christianity. Christian nations seek wealth and fight most wars, Gandhi said. I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. In these words of Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. J.H. Holmes summed up the Indian leader's view of Christianity in a recent interview with a Crimson reporter. Dr. Holmes, professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College and a member of the Society of the, and a member of the Society of Friends, has just completed a tour around the world during which he spent some time in India. He had several opportunities of conversing with Gandhi. He was present at the meeting of the All Indian Congress and had the honor of being the only Westerner ever allowed to speak from their platform. Continuing in Gandhi's words, Dr. Holmes said, I believe in the teachings of Christ, but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully and see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. The Christians above all others are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors that come among he said this, aliens to exploit them for their own good and cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. The Christians are the most warlike people. He wasn't making a blanket statement about all Christians. He was talking about the ones that chose not to be Christ-like. That is the most respectful description I can give to the ones I'm addressing in particular. Why did Gandhi say, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian? By the Kansas City Star, TNS, vvdailypress.com. Okay. This was posted August 26, 2016 at 9.18 a.m., Updated August 26, 2016 at 9.18 a.m. Okay, all the years of 2016. Chuck Stanford, I am a emeritus, rhyme Buddhist center. To fully understand this quote, it is important to know the backstory from where it came. While Gandhi was practicing Hinduism, while Gandhi was a practicing Hindu, Christianity intrigued him. In his reading of the Gospels, Gandhi was impressed by Jesus, whom Christians worshipped and followed. He wanted to know more about this Jesus that Christians referred to as the Christ, the Messiah. The Reverend Patterson tells the following story. One Sunday morning, Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary... He was stopped at the door by the ushers. He was told he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church, as was for high case. High case. Okay, I want to make sure I'm saying this word right. Why be ignorant if you don't have to, right? That's what I feel. So you're going to hear me do what I usually do. Cast. There we go. He was told he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church as it was for high caste Indians and whites only. He was neither high caste, nor was he white. Because of the rejection, the Mahatma turned his back on Christianity. With this act, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith, never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by the sin of segregation that was practiced by the church. It was due to his experience that Gandhi later declared, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. In Buddhism, there's a saying, don't confuse the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. This means the finger pointing at the moon teaches us that although someone points to the moon to show us the truth of its luminosity, the finger pointing is not the moon itself. Likewise, the practitioner of a religion doesn't always practice the religion the way it was originally taught. Arvind Kaita, Hindu and an engineer, 
Mahatma Gandhi was one of the great spiritual and political leaders who made an enormous contribution to the moral resources of humankind. The movie Gandhi by Richard Attenborough is an excellent introduction to the life of Gandhi and his persistent effort to live by truth and nonviolence. To understand his spiritual transformation, Gandhi and autobiography, the story of my experiments with truth and Gandhi the man, the story of his transformation by Eknath, a Swaran are excellent resources. In his autobiography, Gandhi writes that morality is the basis of things and that truth is the substance of all morality. He believed that a virtue achieves its potential only in its application, and it ceases to have any use if it serves no purpose in daily life. So for Gandhi, it was imperative that spiritual truths are lived in one's daily life. This is exactly what Gandhi did. He made the Bhagavad Gita his spiritual guide and, and implanted and implemented its teachings, emphasizing the passionate search for truth. Satwagraha, Satwagraha, a profound reverence for all life, nonviolence, and the ideal of non-attachment. His material possessions were minimal. Gandhi also studied the Bible and the Quran. He was moved by Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. During Gandhi's prayer meetings, he read from scripture of different faiths as he had reference for all religions. Thus, Gandhi exemplified his own words, be the change you want to see in the world. So the answer lies in our asking our, a sincere question. Are we really living the spiritual truths in our daily lives to bring about positive change in the world rife, or IFE, with violence, economic disparity, animosity between faiths and environmental degradation? Mm. I'll get back to Gandhi, but I have to read this. Sojo.net. This is a Sojourners. Evangelicals, you keep using that word, by Jim Wallace, October 6, 2016. Evangelicalism, by definition, is a theological term, not a political one. The vast majorities of evangelicals support Donald Trump. We've heard that statement so often during this election season that it's all about uh, that it's all but assumed fact. But there's a problem with that line and with how we talk about quote unquote evangelicals in this election. From a political perspective, evangelicals in quotations comprise primarily older, politically conservative white men. A statement released today by a racially diverse and intergenerational group of evangelicals bucks that identity. In it, the signatories call out the racism apparent this election cycle, writing, racism cuts to the core of the gospel and racial justice and reconciliation is at the heart of the message of Jesus. They apply that theological commitment to this election by saying that racial bigotry is a, is a foundational matter of the gospel for us in this election and not just another issue. It's brazen use to win elections threatens to reverse real progress on racial equity and set America back. The signers are not alone in their belief that racial justice is a core issue for evangelicals, though you wouldn't know it from reviewing the media's portrayal of them. Evangelical in quotations as a voting bloc has long enjoyed the kind of political sway that has earned it a place at the top of news cycles in every presidential election season in recent history. It stems from the fact that 30% of Americans identify as evangelicals, according to 2014 data from Pew Research Center, and that partisan political organizing long ago grabbed only two issues to define the term. The confusion now comes in how we talk about evangelicals. Several polls this election season, including one by Pew, shows that Donald Trump's support among white evangelicals is close to 80%. Too often, that number gets reported as 80% of all evangelicals support Trump, but it's not true. If you look a little more carefully at the data, about 37% of self-identified evangelicals are non-white, and those numbers are growing. Mitt Romney's run bears this out. He got a similar level of support from evangelical voters as Trump is getting now, but his support dropped significantly when non-white evangelicals were included in the measurement. And of course, this is a very different election with one candidate stoking racial fears and making implicit racism explicit. 
Data from PRRI shows that the share of older white evangelicals in this country is shrinking, while the non-white and younger generation of evangelicals is growing. Unfortunately, older white evangelicals are showing themselves to be more white than evangelical, putting aside many of their traditional moral concerns to support Donald Trump, a move that seems hypocritical to many. But that trend is not true of evangelicals of color and a younger generation define evangelical differently than older white evangelicals do. And thankfully, they're using the original definition Jesus gave us. Three in 10 U.S. adults are born again or evangelical Protestants. Percentage of adult, U.S. adults who are Protestant, 51% 2007, 47% 2014. Self-identify as born again or evangelical, 30% 2007. That same percentage is in 2014. Uh, white, non-Hispanic, 21%, 2007. Um, 19%, 2014. Black, non-Hispanics, 6% in both 2007 and 2014. Hispanic, 2%, 2007, 3%, 2014. Uh, other races, this percentages. The percentage of 2% is both in 2007 and 2014. Not born again or evangelical, 21% 2007, 17% 2014. Not Protestant, 49% 2007, 53% 2014. That all equals 100 on each side in each year. 2014 Religious Landscape Study conducted June 4th through September 30th, 2014. Figures may not add to 100% or to subtotals indicated due to rounding Pew Research Center via Pew Research Center. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free. The root of the Greek verb, the root of the Greek verb Jesus uses in Luke chapter 4 for quote-unquote good news is evangel from which we get the words evangelize and evangelical it's a theological term not a political one it means that jesus's movement was to be based on proclaiming the good news and without a doubt jesus gospel was always to be good news for the poor and oppressed the new evangelical statement attempts to clarify who evangelicals are and how they should be defined, not as a people beholden to any political party, but as a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that always seeks to lift up those on the margins of society, not deport them or scam them or attack their professionalism because of their ethnicity or gender. These, these evangelicals are Americans of African and European descent, Latino slash Asian American and Native American. They are women and men. And I'm going to add this. He didn't say it. I'm going to add members of the LGBTQI plus community, as well as younger and older evangelical Christians from a wide range of denominational and political backgrounds. We believe in the unity of the body of Christ, but we acknowledge the diverse nature of a community whose faith is biblical and evangelical, the statement says, and we are growing. Given the rich diversity within our unity, we call upon the political world to hear all our voices and for the media to acknowledge that the evangelical community is quite diverse. And they're not alone. According to John Ward, who released a short documentary and explanation of this trend for Yahoo News Today, it's unclear how this will play out politically, but a growing and active subset of Christians are determined to reclaim the evangelical label and to reject the idea that they are a monolithic voting bloc that marches in lockstep with the GOP. And even a number of white evangelical leaders, including conservative columnist Michael Gerson, the Southern Baptist Convention's Russell Moore and others have come out against the racial bigotry and misogyny in this election, in this election cycle that is antithetical to Christian and evangelical values. Still, other white evangelical leaders and pastors have privately told me how astonishing it is to them that a majority of white evangelicals seem to be lining up behind Trump. But this is ultimately not about but this is not ultimately about politics. It's not about favoring any political party. As the aforementioned statement says, whether we support Mr. Trump's political opponent is not the question here. Hillary Clinton is both supported and distrusted by a variety of Christian voters. We undersigned evangelicals simply will not tolerate the racial, religious, and gender bigotry that Donald Trump has consistently and deliberately fueled, no matter how else we choose to vote or not to vote. For a new multi-ethnic generation of evangelicals, 
This is a moral test of conscience and faith over what is most important to us. Will this election ultimately be about whiteness or about what is best for the diverse America we are becoming? Before and after this election, my hope is that the media and other commentators will start getting it right. What it means to be evangelical is changing. It's reverting back to its original meaning. Older white evangelicals are clearly losing their share of the electorate and their political power, while the share of younger non-white evangelicals is growing. The issues that motivate these younger multi-ethnic evangelicals, which include racial, economic, and gender justice and healing, as well as issues of life from womb to tomb, remind us what it means to be a bearer of good news to those on the margins. That points to a very different future for the word evangelical in this country, and that is good news indeed. Jim Wallace is founder and ambassador of Sojourners. His book, Christ in Crisis, Why We Need to Reclaim Jesus, is available in paperback now. Follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. Good on timing. Sojourners again by Stephen Matson. History will judge today's Christians according to these four questions, February 17, 2016. God is perfectly clear what the mandate is for helping those in need. You can look back in history and criticize Christians for failing to follow Jesus during some of the world's darkest moments. But today's Christians will also be judged according to their actions. And here are four moral questions facing today's Christians. One, in the midst of a historically horrible refugee crisis, why didn't you actively pursue helping the poor, the destitute, and those in desperate need? Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses three through five. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses three through five. Self-correction. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Desolation. And are followers of Jesus supposed to forsake compassion, sacrifice hospitality, and abandon love in favor, in favor of a political policy, national security, financial stability, and personal comfort? God is perfectly clear what the mandate is for helping those in need. And yet Christians continue to remain apathetic, passive, and even aggressively hostile toward the notion of aiding such victims. How could you promote a gospel of hope, peace, joy, and love while simultaneously supporting restrictive policies preventing people from possibly obtaining these exact things by denying them entrance into a safe haven? And why would you go one step further by punitively deporting people back into circumstances of poverty and violence? Two, why didn't you recognize and fight systemic racism and equality? James chapter 2, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. First chapter. First John chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. For a faith that promotes the virtues of justice, equality, and fairness, especially for those who are ostracized and mistreated, why didn't you help the victims of systemic racism, abuse, and, opp and oppression? How could you ignore and even criticize a large segment of humanity that's being victimized by authorities, institutionally incarcerated, professionally repressed, governmentally mistreated? 
educationally stifled, financially subjugated, and socially rejected. Massive abuse on an epic scale was being systemically waged against people simply based on their race and gender. And what did you do? You had a chance to be on the forefront of a civil rights movement fueled by a righteous and holy God who despises corruption, unjust scales, exploitation, bigotry, and racism. Why didn't you desperately and passionately call upon God in such times? Why didn't you publicly... Why didn't you publicly condemn such evil? And why didn't you act to right such blatant wrongs? Three, why were you so supportive of national agendas associated with violence, destruction, and death? Matthew chapter 26, verses 52-54. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Psalm chapter 11 verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Since you represent a God that died for humanity, how could you actively participate in national agendas that so actively killed, hurt, and neglected humanity? You destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives through militaristic actions and wars that offered little peace, resolution, or stability. You watched and even turned a blind eye as your governments violently intervened throughout the world and selfishly, fearfully, and, and hatefully supplied weapons, technology, and the means to miserably kill, eradicate, and create, and create humanitarian tragedies across the globe on an unparalleled scale. What moral gain was won? What specific need or goal was so vital that it necessarily that it necessitated such outrageous and rampant death. Church, Christians living the year 2016, I say 2021, and so on. Please answer these questions and explain yourselves. Remember, massive abusive was being waged against people simply based on their race and gender, and what did you do? Lastly, four. Why did you crave martial economic and political power when God has already warned you against putting faith in such foolish and temporary things? Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of, wrong, of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Do you not trust in God's sovereignty that you must devote all of your time, energy, resources into supporting a candidate, a political party, and making sure you're pursuing more wealth, fortune, protection, and influence? You boasted of a countercultural gospel and yet fell into the same pitfalls of countless civilizations before you. A desire for carnal power personal safety, comfort, luxury, fame, and wealth. You divisively judged, shamed, alienated, hurt, slandered, and attacked others under the banner of Christian morals, all in an effort to gain additional political clout and control. Have you lost so much faith in God's promises that you abandoned the ways of Jesus for the ways of a worldly empire? Are you so ashamed of identifying with a divine God who died on a cross that you would rather align yourself with oppressors, warmongers, and corrupt rulers? The good news is that these questions are still in the process of being answered, and God can still greatly be glorified by how we serve the world around us by focusing on Christ and refusing to become co-opted by ulterior motives. Modern Christianity can, can leave a mark on history that can show what millions of believers can do together in the name of Jesus, helping, serving, protecting, and loving everyone. Our world isn't without hope because Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, and the Holy Spirit can empower us to be the change we're so desperately in need of. God help us. Stephen Matson is the author of The Great Reckoning, Surviving a Christianity That Looks Nothing Like Christ. You can follow him on Twitter at M-I-K-T-A, that's his handle, or on Facebook. Yes, I am going to first read this from Gandhi. What do you, what do you, what do you think of Christianity? Did you, did you consider becoming Christian? My association with Christians dates from 1889. There was a time in my life when I seriously considered Christianity as my religion. In my pursuit, I met many as scholars and thinkers 
who, while having a profound effect on me, were not able to convince me. Although I admire much of Christianity, I am unable to identify myself with the, with the Orthodox Christianity. I must tell you in all humi- I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism, as I know it, entirely satisfies my soul and fills my whole being. The missionaries come to India thinking that they can come to a land of heathen, of idolaters, of men who do not know God. My own experiences all over India have been on the on the contrary. An average Indian is as much a seeker after truth as the Christian missionaries are possibly more so. Please do not flatter yourselves with the belief that a mere recital of that celebrated verse in St. John's makes a man Christian. If I have read the Bible correctly, I know many men who have never known the name of Jesus Christ, men who have even rejected the official interpretations of Christianity, but would nevertheless, if Jesus came our midst today in the flesh, be probably owned by him more than many of us. My position is that it does not matter what faith you practice as long as the soul longs for truth. Okay. Okay, Gandhi, Christ, and Christianity. This will be the last one I read. Gandhi's fundamental contribution in the field of religion was to give primacy to truth and rationality rather than conformity to traditional practices. This is by Pasco Allen Nazareth, mkgandhi.org. In fact, he made truth the basis of all morality by declaring, I reject any religious doctrine that does not appeal to reason and is in conflict with morality. Though a, de- though a deeply devout Hindu, Gandhi's basic approach to all religions was Sadvaharma Samabhav, equal respect for all religions. For him, all religions had equal status for different paths to the same goal of achieving union with the divine. His religion was that which transcends Hinduism, which changes one's very nature, binds one indissolubly to the truth within and ever, and ever purifies. It is the permanent element in human nature which leaves the soul restless until it has found itself. Known its maker and appreciated the true correspondence between the maker and itself. He affirmed for me different religions are beautiful flowers from the same garden or branches of the same majestic tree. He often said he was as much a Muslim Christian Sikh, S-I-K-H, Buddhist, Jain, and Parsi as he was Hindu and added, The hands that serve are holier than the lips that pray. At his prayer meetings, there were readings from all the holy books. His favorite hymn began with the line, He alone is a true devotee of God who understands the pains and sufferings of others. His religiosity is therefore best described as a spiritualized humanism. Gandhi's great respect for Christ and the extent to which he drew inspiration from him are revealed in his following statements. What does Jesus mean to me? To me, he's one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. Jesus lived and died in vain if he did not teach us to regulate the whole of life by the eternal law of love. Jesus, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Jesus was the most active resistor known perhaps to history. His was nonviolence par excellence. Jesus expressed as no other could the spirit and will of God. It is in this sense that I see him recognized as the son of God. And because the life of Jesus has, has the significance and the transcendence to which I have alluded, I believe that he belongs not solely to Christianity, but the entire world, to all races and people. It matters little under what flag, name, or doctrine they may work, profess a faith, or worship a God inherited from their ancestors. Louis Fisher, Gandhi's biographer, reveals that when he arrived at Sawagram Ashram in May 1942 to spend a week with him, he noticed there was only one decoration on the mud walls of his hut, a black and white print of Jesus Christ with the inscription, He is our peace. He asked Gandhi about it, who replied, I am a Christian and a Hindu and a Muslim and a Jew. Look at all religions with an equal eye. We would not, we would not only not hesitate, but would think it our duty to blend into our faith every acceptable feature of other faiths. Gandhi's great respect for Christ, however, came only after he went to England and South Africa. In his youth, he had a strong aversion to Christianity. In his autobiography, he writes that whereas he had learned from his parents, who had many Jain and Muslim friends, to respect religions other than his own, 
Christianity at that time was an exception. In those days, Christian missionaries used to stand in a corner near the high school and hold forth, pouring abuse on Hindus and their gods. I could not endure this. I must have stood there only once, but that was enough to dissuade me from repeating the experiment. About the same time, I heard of a well-known Hindu having been converted to Christianity. It was the talk of the town that when he was baptized, he had to eat beef and drink liquor, change his clothes, and, theirs, and thenceforth go about in English costume, including a hat. I also heard that the new convert had begun abusing the religion of his ancestors, their customs, and their country. All these things created in me a dislike for Christianity. It was in London, towards the end of his school year there, that he was first introduced through theosophy to the Gita, Buddhism, and Christianity. Soon, therefore, he met a devout Christian in a vegetarian boarding house who spoke to him about Christianity. Gandhi confessed his aversion to it since his school days. The Christian replied, I'm a vegetarian. I do not drink. Many Christians eat meat and drink, but neither meat eating nor drinking is enjoined by scripture. Do please read the Bible. Gandhi agreed and began reading the Bible. Parts of the Old Testament repelled him, but the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament went straight to my heart, and he tried to unify the teaching of the Gita, the Light of Asia, and the Sermon on the Mount. Subsequently, he wrote, the New Testament gave me comfort and boundless joy as it came after the revulsion that parts of the Old Testament had given me. Today, supposing I was deprived of the Gita and forgot all its contents, but had a copy of the Sermon on the Mount, I should derive the same joy from it as I do from the Gita. On his way back to India after, after the 1931 Roundtable Conference in London, he stopped in Lausanne to meet Roman Ro, Ro, Romain Roland. And in Rome, where he visited St. Peter's in the Sistine Chapel, seeing a painting of the crucified Christ in the latter, he commented, what would, not I, what would not I have given to be able to bow my head before the living image of Christ crucified? I saw there at once that nations like individuals could only be made through the agony of the cross and in no other way. Joy comes not out of infliction of pain on others, but out of pain voluntarily borne by oneself. In, enunci in enunciating his educational ideas, he wrote, Jesus never uttered a loftier or a grandeur truth that when he said that wisdom cometh out of the mouth of babes. I believe it. If we are to reach real peace in this world, if we are to carry on real war against war, we shall have to begin with the children. Writing about art. He stated, Jesus was to my mind a supreme artist because he saw and expressed truth. All true art must help the soul to realize its inner self. <laughs> truth is the first thing to be sought for and beauty and goodness will then be added unto you. True art takes note not merely of form but also of what lies beyond. When his trusteeship concept was criticized as too idealistic, he defended it thus. The question we are asking ourselves today is not a new one. It was addressed to Jesus 2,000 years ago. St. Mark has vividly described the scene. Jesus is in a solemn mood. He talks of eternity, but is the greatest eco economist, economist of his time. He has succeeded in economizing time and space. He had transcended them. To him comes a young man, kneels down and asks, Good master, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? He then goes on to recount the answer that Jesus gave, including his affirmation that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And adds, Here you have an eternal rule of life stated in the noblest words in the English language. The strongest testimony in support of it are the lives of the greatest teachers of the world. Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Nanak, Kabir, Shaitanya, Shankara, Dayananda, and Ramakrishna. They all deliberately embrace poverty. Uh, they all deliberately embrace poverty as their lot. In view of his great admiration for Christ, attempts were made by some of his Christian friends to convert him to Christianity, particularly after he attended the Wellington Convention in South Africa. About it, he wrote, The conversion lasted for three days. I could appreciate the devoutness of those who attended it, but I saw no reason for changing my religion. It was impossible for me, it was impossible for me to believe that I could attain salvation only by becoming a Christian. My reason was not ready to accept that Jesus, by his death and by his blood, redeemed the sins of the world. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, as an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but, I, but not as the most perfect man ever born. Though I took a path other than the one my Christian friends had intended for me, I have remained forever indebted to them for the religious quest that they awakened in me.
Gandhi's closest friend, Reverend C.F. Andrews, in his book, Mahatma Gandhi's Life and Ideas, describes Satyagraha as corporate moral resistance. And perhaps it would be true to say that since the days of the early Christian church, no such effective acts of passive resistance have been organized as those which Mahatma Gandhi inspired. Yeah, I pretty much get the point. Um, You know, I want to, I only read until I think, okay, I think my, I think the podcast listeners get the point, homie. So... I will say this. Um, I appreciated Brother Gandhi's stance on faith because I'll explain the all my reasons, but I appreciate his faith for one reason I can't explain. All the others you'll hear in my other podcast episode where I just talk from my heart. Because I'm almost done. Um, In fact, I got time right now. I support Gandhi's stances because I love that he took the good of all faiths, religious spiritualities and infuse it in his own life because that is exactly what I do. That's the only reason I'll share. The rest, I won't give any spoiler alerts. I will pleasantly surprise you. Okay. I'll read this though. 10 Political Things You Can't Do While Following Jesus by Mark Satlin, June 12, 2013. In response to my last article, 10 Things You Can't Do While Following Jesus. I was accused multiple times of being political. All I was trying to do was follow Jesus, so I thought I'd be interesting and generate tons more hate mail to show what a list would actually look like if I were being political intentionally. Like the first list, this is not a complete list, but it's a pretty good place to start. There will be those who comment and send me messages berating me for making Jesus political. It's okay. Fire away. Jesus didn't worry much about stepping on political toes, and the Bible insists that governments must be just toward the least of these. The books of the prophets alone make this point very clear. Frequently, people who are the most vocal about not making Jesus political are the same people who want prayer in school and laws based on their own religious perspective and laws based on their own religious perspectives. By a happy little circumstance, that brings us to my list. Okay. One, support capital punishment, execution. Jesus died by execution. He was an innocent man. Every year, innocent people die by execution in our nation. It's time to be a shining city on a hill. It's time to express the fullness of love, to express the value of life. It's time to stop the government-sanctioned killing. Two, devalue education. We learn in Proverbs that wisdom is something in which God delights daily. As a matter of fact, according to Proverbs, wisdom is better than gold. When we look at the percentage of our budget that goes to education and what Congress is trying to do to student loans... It's pretty clear that delighting in wisdom is something our government no longer does. Three, turn away immigrants. Christian heritage runs through Judaism. We're an immigrant people. Even our religion began somewhere else. Our spiritual ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, were told by God to pick up what they had and start traveling. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron led a nation out of Egypt into the desert and ultimately to new lands. Even Jesus spent part of his childhood as a foreigner in a foreign land. As Exodus says, we know how it feels to be foreigners in a foreign land. If you don't think, if you don't think being foreigners in a foreign land is still our story, ask Native Americans. At best, turning away immigrants makes us hypocrites. At worst, it makes us betrayers of our ancestors and our God. Four, limit the rights of a select group of people. Jesus loves everybody, but he loves me best. Kind of sits the wrong way with you, doesn't it? Well, it should, and with good reason. If you spend any time reading the Bible, you know that we all were made in God's image. Exactly which part of us is in God's image is let exactly which part of us is in God's image is less clear, but what is clear is that we were equally made in the image of God. Any law that doesn't treat people equally is as good as thumbing your nose at God. Even worse, doing it in the name of God or based on religious beliefs. See number 10. 5. Withhold health care from people. This time, I'm not only repeating an item, I'm repeating a lot of what I said. Did you ever play the game Follow the Leader? If you don't do what the leader does, you are out. Following means you should imitate as close as possible. When people who are sick needed care, Jesus gave it to them. If we are following Jesus, we will imitate him as closely as possible. 
No, the government can't repeat the miracles he did, but I've seen modern medicine do things that are about as close to a miracle as I expect to get. While the government can't do miracles, it can supply modern medicine. Every year, 45,000 people die in the U.S. because of the lack of health care. We Christians like to talk about saving people. Well, I know of about 45,000 people who'd love for us to do it, and we should because that's how love works. Six, let people go hungry. Well, 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 what have we here? Is this an item from the original top 10 list, which I claimed was not politically motivated? Looks like I've stepped into my own clever trap. Moo-hoo-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. Dr. Evil laughed. Seriously, though, of course, it's on both lists. It is a spiritual issue and it is a political issue. Spiritually, back to Gandhi, he said, There are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of bread. Political... Politically, hunger causes problems with education, production, and civil behavior that are all necessary for a successful nation. More importantly for Christians, Jesus said when we feed the hungry, we're feeding him. So yes, this item is on both lists, and I'm going to do it again. 7. Cut funding that hurts the least of these. To some degree, this is the inverse of number 8. Favoring the rich is despicable. We Jesus minions should avoid it. Hurting the poor, well, that's just just um, something a whole lot worse than despicable despicable despicabler uber despicable when jesus said whatever you do in the, whatever you do to the least of these you do it to me he meant it when you cut funding and it hurts people according to jesus you are hurting him number eight favoring the rich over the poor this is actually related to number four Favoring the rich over the poor is a slap in the face of Jesus, his life, and his teachings. In terms of the teachings of Jesus, it is bad enough when we allow the rich to take advantage of the poor, but when we create laws that not only encourage the behavior but also protect it, well, let's just say it becomes crystal clear how ironic it is that we print in God and we trust on our money. 9. Advocate for war. There's a reason why he was called the Prince of Peace. Sure, you can quote, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, and even two or three other verses. But they didn't hold a candle to the more than 50-some verses where Jesus speaks about peace and peacemaking. It's funny how things keep coming back to love, but it needs to be said. It is way far away from loving a person to kill them. I guess there's a reason why we say God is love in the end, love wins. Lastly, number 10. Force your religious beliefs and practices on others. One of the strengths of the faith Jesus taught was its meekness. The faith he taught valued free will over compulsion, because that's how love works. Compelling people to follow any religion, more or less your personal religion, stands over and against the way Jesus practices faith. If you're using the government to compel people to practice your spiritual beliefs, you might be the reason baby Jesus is crying. This does get tricky. There's a difference in letting your beliefs inform your political choices and letting your politics enforce your religion. This article is about the first part. That is the best way for me to conclude.